summer, folks. Welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. And as you probably know, this program is pretty darn unique. I wish it wasn't so unique. You know, and if you want to help make Sean Hannity quiver in his pricey swivel chair, which I think you really do, then become a sponsor of the Fallon Forum or a monthly donor. Somehow support what we're doing. Help us continue to provide this platform to viewpoints you will not hear on the big stations that are owned by iHeart, Cumulus, Sinclair, the big corporations. Unlike the corporate sponsors of those stations, uh, our program is supported entirely by small businesses, nonprofits, and listeners like you through your donations and monthly pledges. So help continue to make this forum possible. All right, so before I tell you about today's program, I want to thank our anchor small business partner, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store, and it's Des Moines' centrally located grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online, and Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. All right, so again, later in the program, we're going to be talking uh, about uh, a new book by Dr. Maureen McHugh, Birds in the Morning, Frogs at Night. A good kind of a how to find wilderness amid the Iowa, Midwestern cornfields. And we'll also be talking about uh, the Bison Bridge that is proposed to be built across the Mississippi River. This is fascinating and a brilliant idea. We'll also talk about Line 3. The Minnesota pipeline that's uh, unfortunately uh, moving forward. And we'll talk with Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm about why food prices are going up. No, it's not my fault. First, though, I want to talk with you about ranked choice voting, also called instant runoff voting. Uh, this is, I, I go way back with this one because back when I was a legislator, me and I believe I had a Republican co-sponsor introduced legislation that would have piloted an instant runoff voting program here in Iowa. This is back in the 90s. Uh, yeah, it got no traction then at all. Got kind of laughed out of the state government committee. But um, it's good to see it getting traction all around the country, not in Iowa yet, not in the Midwest yet. But um, the highest profile instance of instant runoff voting that I'm aware of right now is New York City. The mayor's race, it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it, there are a whole bunch of candidates running, and voters will get to choose up to five, and they can rank them, top choice, second, third, fourth, fifth. And I've been looking at the New York, I, I love the idea myself. It, it, it gives some viability to, to folks who don't want to necessarily vote for one of the two major political parties, which pretty much have, have it set up to dominate the whole structure. And I, I think that's why you've got people on the inside who don't like the instant runoff voting proposal. Well, the New York Times analysis, they kind, of, they kind of have a mixed feelings about it. But overall, I'd say they probably imply that they don't really like it. And they write, and I quote, the system has some big advantages. That is the instant runoff voting system. Uh, quote, in a traditional election, people who vote for a long shot candidate like Ralph Nader, the Green Party presidential nominee in 2000, can end up hurting a top-tier candidate like Al Gore that year. With ranked choice, progressive voters could have listed Nader first and Gore second. End of quote. <laughs> okay, now I'm on my soapbox. First of all, um, they, 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 they feed the whole myth uh, that you have to be a Democrat or Republican to be a serious candidate. Quote, top-tier candidate. You know? Uh, and again, they, they ignore the fact that there are non-top-tier party candidates. You know, there are non-Democrats or Republicans who win. There was, there was uh, Joe Lieberman in New York. There's Bernie Sanders in Vermont. There's um, King in Maine. There was Jesse Ventura in Minnesota getting, getting elected for governor. You know, they're out there. They, it doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. So maybe maybe uh, dismissing non-Democrats or Republicans as non-top-tier voter, non-top-tier candidates might be a little bit of a you know a little little bit inappropriate. So um, and again, assuming that the only voters who really like 
would, would have liked Ralph Nader, our, quote, progressive voters. And, of course, the New York Times also likes to interchange the words progressive and liberal, which are extremely different. There's a huge difference between those two. I'm not going to get on that soapbox today. But, um, you know, they, they, like, they, they, they go on to point out, and I'll quote again, once Nader failed to finish in the top two, the final round of the election would have reallocated his voters to their second choice, which would have often have been Al Gore. Okay, so, end of quote. <laughs> again, me back on my soapbox. Again, when, when, you, when you set it up that way, you're automatically bringing a huge bias to the conversation. You know, maybe Gore was the second-tier candidate. <laughs> um, and maybe it's not just progressives that like Ralph Nader. Or for that matter, Bernie Sanders. And again, I know more than a few people who voted for Sanders in 2016 and then for Trump. All right. And also in, in terms of um, populist appeal, Donald Trump. I mean, it's not hard to imagine that somebody who would have voted for Nader might have had their second choice as Donald Trump. Probably not an establishment candidate like Gore or Bush or Clinton or Romney. But, you know, there's such a deep dissatisfaction with the status quo that instant runoff voting gives voters an opportunity to express that discontent by voting for the person they really believe in and not, quote, being accused of, quote, voting, uh, throwing their vote away. That's what you often hear. People throw their vote away. If you don't vote for a Democrat or Republican, you're just throwing your vote away. I get so tired of hearing that. Uh, and again, this system, instant run of voting, provides an alternative. It's, it's, not just, um, it's not just New York City, folks. Again, Maine has been using it in federal elections since uh, 2018. There are over 50 cities, not just New York, but uh, Oakland, California, uh, San Francisco, Minneapolis also use instant runoff voting. There's also, um, it's also used in state parties in Kansas. So it is in the Midwest. I was wrong. Virginia. Uh, also, I know, from, I know this from personal experience, it's used in Ireland. So... Uh, the interesting place to me where it will be tried this year is Alaska. And again, I go back, I look again at the New York Times analysis, thinking, well, maybe instant runoff voting isn't so good because look what might happen in Alaska. So you've got Lisa Murkowski, that's the um, Republican incumbent, who, again, does not always toe the party line. Uh, there's also um, uh, a Trump Republican named Kelly Chewbacca. It sounds like Chewbacca from Star Wars, but I don't think that's quite how you say it. I, I'm, that's as close as I can get, though. Uh, and the third is an independent who, um, you know, would possibly, possibly like Bernie Sanders, uh, would, would caucus with Senate Democrats. Not sure on that, but his name is Al Gross. So the, 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 the Times points out that uh, for many Democratic voters, the order of preference would be Gross, Murkowski, and then Chewbacca way last. <laughs> Um, yet the concern that the Times points out is that Murkowski would receive fewer first, first, fewer first place votes than either Gross or Chewbacca, and she'd be eliminated, and her votes would be reallocated, and then that would be Chewbacca versus Gross, and then the New York Times points out, well, Chewbacca would easily beat Gross. Again, that's the, that's the stuff I get so sick of, this assumption by the Defenders of the status quo, and if there is any defender of the status quo more enshrined than the New York Times, I'm not sure who it is, you know, that, that you, can't, you can't possibly have, um, have a progressive populist type candidate beat, uh, you know, beat any establishment candidate. But in this case, it would be interesting, again, if Murkowski was eliminated through instant runoff voting, you'd have a Trump populist uh, off, you know, running against a... Uh, a, a more um, progressive populist. That would be interesting. The bottom line is, to me, you should vote your conscience. You know, it just, the, the overthinking that the New York Times analysis does is just incredible. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's, it also reminds me that it was, you know, the establishment, again, not just the Times, other outlets as well, were certain that there was no way Hillary Clinton could possibly lose to Donald Trump. And that Sanders could never possibly beat Donald Trump. Trump would beat Sanders hands down, he, and he would lose to Clinton hands down. Well, look what happened, folks. We'll never know if um, Sanders could have beaten Trump, uh, but he certainly wouldn't. <laughs> he certainly couldn't have done any worse than Clinton. Uh, and there's, again, 
with the interviews I've been having with Trump supporters, and again, not many are saying that they would have supported Bernie, but uh, when you look at what they believe in, you know, a lot of it is just dissatisfaction with the establishment, and not not just the Democratic establishment, but, but the Republican universe as well. So, you know, I think the New York Times is, again, trying to find a way to make instant runoff voting um, seem like a problem for the, um, the you know, the, the candidates that we might most like to see in office. In this case, Murkowski over the Trump Republican. But... Um, I, I, th I think this idea that you should, they, they, and, they, they, and they, they suggest going into the voting booth with that strategy in mind. Don't vote, your, don't vote for your first choice. Vote for the choice you would least like to see, you know, um, you know, you know not, 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 not be ousted on the first round. And, you know, this is such ridiculous overthinking, in my opinion. Just, just vote your dang conscience. I mean, isn't that what people really want to do? They just want to vote for the person that they believe in? You know, don't. That's been the problem with the current system. People don't vote for the person they believe in because they've been browbeat to believe that they can't do that, or they'll be quote throwing their vote away. So, <laughs> with instant runoff voting, you don't have to do that, and the establishment is trying to convince voters otherwise. So I love this um, comment from Rob Ritchie. He's referenced in the New York Times story. He's an advocate for ranked choice voting, instant runoff voting. And he responds that every system has its downsides. Every system of voting has its downsides. And he cites a, the Nobel winning economist Kenneth Arrow, who helped demonstrate that empirically with an analysis. And Richie says, quote, every non-ranked system has far greater problems. I, you know, I, I concur. Let's do this. I, I'm glad to see it catching on in other places. I hope what happens in New York uh, is instructive. I hope what happens in Alaska is instructive. And I hope other places, including Iowa, get to have this opportunity to check out instant runoff voting and see what happens. At any rate, the bottom line is you, might, you have a much better chance of voting your conscience than under the current system. All right, when we come back from a short break, folks, Maureen McHugh is going to join us. We're going to talk about her book. We'll see what it's like to live on a wilderness oasis in the midst of the cornfields. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham has been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yup, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon with you here, bringing you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide where of course, coming to you from the heartland, and we've got a lot of heartland guests with us today. Before I introduce to you our next guest, I want to thank a couple of our nonprofit sponsors, including Bold Iowa, building rural-urban coalitions to address the climate crisis and to prevent the abuse of eminent domain to build pipelines. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get more information about classes and workshops at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. My next guest, Dr. Maureen McHugh. Maureen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ed. I appreciate uh, being invited. Thank yeah. you. Maureen is with the Global Health Studies Program at the Center for Human Rights, I believe, and also the Iowa Coordinator for Physicians for Social Responsibility. And most recently, she has written a book called Birds in the Morning, Frogs at Night, 
That sounds really good to me. That sounds like the recipe for an excellent sleep. Warren, <laughs> welcome well, to the... Well, <laughs> uh, hopefully the book doesn't put you to sleep. Well, yeah, right. But, but the, the actual... Yeah, we live in the city, and sometimes we have an environment at night that is less conducive to peaceful slumber. But your book is not just about that. It's about, um, according to... I, I've seen some really nice reviews of it, including one that indicates the, uh, that you make a persuasive and poetic case that rural life might be one answer to the environmental ills brought by our consumptive, thoughtless, and relentlessly destructive society. Anyway, and you know, one, one writer also points out that Iowa is not known for its nature writing, and that may be because Iowa is not known for nature. <laughs> we have a lot of um, developed land in the state, a lot of it developed for corn and soybeans, which has its upside as well. But um, so tell me, uh, tell me about the intent of this book. Uh, Thank you. Well, it's written some, somewhat in the style of a memoir, a little bit of a travel log, because as you mentioned, I do teach and have taught for a long time in global health studies. So it's informed by over 30 years living along the same road, as well as other roads encountered along the world. Hmm. both before and uh, during my teaching time. Um, and throughout the book, the themes I'm liking to discuss, not so much whether or not it's better or worse to live rural or live um, urban, but rather to consider the connectivity hmm. and the okay. similarity of challenges that are being faced by lives here, both human and non-human, like as in plants and animals, yeah. along my road, and those encountered around the world. So you know, I was so the, not. Yeah, I was not known for a lot of wilderness. Um, but you, you, uh, you've kind of created a memoir that, at its heart, I mean, again, you talk about your, the various places you've seen in the world through your work. But you're, uh, you're in this little wilderness enclave in the midst of uh, a bunch of uh, corn and soybean fields. That's true, and that is one of the things I'm um, addressing because with whether or not it's uh, corn and soybeans or it's um, mega housing in suburban areas or whatever, what we're talking about is the way human society is currently headed. We're um, squeezing out the life of all the rest of the life forms. And so I have one chapter that I've called Who's home is it anyway, and I start with <laughs> considering, A, the fact that all of us uh, humans are here having moved away all of the prior, you know, prior uh, Native Americans living here, but then now uh, my home is under assault constantly by the little bit of wildlife that's there, um, i.e. raccoons and groundhogs <laughs> and deer and so on, and yet I feel almost that I have nothing to say about their destructive behavior or what we call destructive behavior because they're just trying to survive. They're, yeah. they're finding smaller and smaller places to survive. Now, this is reminding and, me, rem yeah. reminding so, me a little bit of, anyway. uh, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Annie Dillard's book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, where she immerses herself in a very... Um, you know, a, a, a small but important uh, wilderness ecosystem and describes all the different interconnections between the animals, well, each animals and each other and her and the animals. I, I imagine you've grown to be somewhat um, concerned about the, the growing presence of raccoons, even as you admit that it may be their home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we've spent the last several years transporting them to the local bio reserves and one of my friends asked, did we put a, a, some kind of a, a tag on them because, you know, we have them so many, we don't know whether they're coming back, but, but we moved them, you know, several miles, up to 40 miles away. Right. But, yeah, I mean, they have to live somewhere unless we're going to talk about making them extinct along with uh, so many other things. Other themes that I looked at weren't just the fact that the human population is squeezing out any other life forms, but also the notion of um, invasives as we alter our our nature, our natural environment, you know, we're in, including uh, 
into our lives or inviting into our lives invasive plants. We right. complain they about take refugees. Over. Yeah. We're worried about viruses. Um, we're so altering everything that what gets left over are the things that we feel are uh, have very we have very negative responses to. So I was trying to look at those kinds of themes as well as obviously climate right. and water and food. And mental health. Now we have a the uh, the disturbing news that I hear referenced from time to time is that we have a hundred or maybe two hundred species a day going extinct in the in the world, which is almost hard to grab to to wrap one's mind around. But that's um I mean that's indicative of the pressure I think that that all wilderness experiences whether they they're plants or animals or or even human beings trying to live in a more natural environment. Uh, there's right. pressure coming at you from all around. Uh, certainly the right, systemic right. impact if of climate change. If you live change. in the same place over uh, a good period of time, which in geologic terms, 30-some years is nothing, but right. in human society terms, it's a, it's a good enough time period. And I've certainly seen the change in the insect population, the animal population, the um, uh, plant populations. There, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, but I think speaking about extinction, while in the life of the planet Earth, most species have gone extinct. And we're talking about with some alarm all the other species, but we tend to forget that we're also a relatively newcomer species and we're doing right. everything we can to eliminate ourselves in the future yeah, there's a there's a there's a disturbing irony to that yes yeah. yeah and so you know trying to look at these themes from a we're connected perspective rather than them versus us i was hoping anyway that people would begin to kind of put these connections together and begin to think about how they are both affected by and affecting all of that which right. is going on around them, and that it is no longer us versus them, or you know, prioritizing our existence over their existence. It's That's either we all exist together, yes. we find a way to exist together, or we're all going to. So that that's an important message. Um, that's an important message, and I hope uh, people will take time to uh, get a copy of and read your book. What's uh, I know? I see you've been published by a local publishing company, uh, Ice Cube Press. That's out of Iowa City. Um, no, it's not. It's North Liberty. But uh, sorry, thank North you for Liberty. Close I, enough. <laughs> they're a, a lovely small press that does put out a lot of. Uh, work by local uh, writers, and it does, where possible, also um, encourage writing on the environment. And right. uh, so I really was very pleased uh, that they took my book and took it under their wing, and so I just want to do a shout-out for right. Ice Cube Press in Good. North Liberty, Iowa. And you're, uh, you're going to be on a book tour at some point? I am. I'm trying. I'm, in fact, you might say I'm starting with the Fallon Forum. Well, hey, why not? <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I've been um, talking to and sharing the book with a number of people. Unfortunately, with the pandemic being sort of quasi on, quasi off, um, it's been a little bit hard to set things up. But I'm, I'm looking forward to really getting started um, somewhere um, mid to late July. I've got a number of people lined up and getting the exact dates has as much to do with when public spaces will be open right. as much as anything at this point. But so, so, I, I do appreciate being able to come on your show, talk about it, at least get the word out there to a little bit wider audience, so remind if, people. So if people are interested in either getting a copy of the book, attending a reading, or perhaps even hosting a reading, how do they do that? Where do they go? Well, they can get uh, a copy of the book, obviously, from Ice Cube Press. Um, if they're interested in hosting a meeting, which would be uh, lovely, um, they could write to me um, at info, I-N-F-O, at PSRIowa.org. PSR as in Physicians for Social Responsibility dot org. All right. Very good. PSRIowa.org. Iowa. Yeah. Right. Very yeah. good. Folks, we've been talking with uh, Dr. Maureen McHugh, the author of Birds in the Morning, Frogs at Night. 
Sharing Life Along the Road. Uh, you can get a copy of, uh, you, can, you can learn about her book and, and check out uh, possibilities for coming to hear her speak about it uh, by going to the Ice Cube Press website, or you can write to her at info at psriowa.org for more information. Thank you uh, again so much for joining us, Maureen. And thank you so much for having me. Have a good rest of the day. Next on the, on the docket, Chad Pergraki is going to join us. We're going to talk about a plan to put bison on a bridge across the Mississippi River. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back, folks. Ed Fallon with you here on the Fallon Forum, broadcasting from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. We've got a bunch of great guests from the Upper Midwest today. Great to hear from Maureen McHugh about her new book, Birds in the Morning, Frogs at Night. Uh, Real excited about our next guest. Before I tell you about him, though, I want to take a second to thank our local business partners, including Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or simply by calling Dr. Holding at 515-232-8766. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are both fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. All right, I'm thrilled to welcome to the program Chad Pragraki. He's the guy with the vision behind the Bison Bridge. And maybe you have not heard of the Bison Bridge. I just heard of it recently, but the idea of bison walking across a bridge on the Mississippi River, sure caught my attention. Chad, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Really appreciate it. Okay, so, okay. Bison walking across a bridge across the Mississippi. Take us on that journey for a second, will you? Well, um, sure, yeah. So <clears throat> they are building Illinois Department of Transportation and, and Iowa Department of Transportation are building a new Interstate 80 bridge across the Mississippi River, and they're essentially going to blow up the old one, and we as taxpayers are going to spend $30 million tearing tearing the old one down. Is that what it costs to blow up a bridge? They, they are going to blow the bridge up, yeah, once they're done with it. $30 million, blow wow. It up. Yep, okay. $30 million is what it's estimated to take. That's what the engineers say, and... Uh, and I've had this idea of a, actually a small herd of bison right there at the, where the Mississippi River and I-80 intersect on the Illinois side for about 20 years. The idea actually came from Interstate 70 going up into the Rocky Mountains where it says wildlife viewing area and there's a herd of bison. And I, I've stopped there probably you know 30 times as oh, a kid wow. and as an adult. And every time it's packed with people viewing wildlife and so i always thought you know this would be a great small herd we're talking just like 10 right there um is where the idea came from and then once i found out that uh, idot was going to be dismantling the bridge blowing the bridge up and how much it cost i thought what if we kept the bridge and made one of the world's longest wildlife crossings and um with a small herd of, of bison so, and um so little... i mean you said it it caught your attention and that's really what 
I'm hoping to do is get people to stop and, and uh, I'm wanting to create a national park. Let me ask you this, Chad. Let me ask you this. Uh, why, why are the Illinois and Iowa DOTs choosing to tear down this bridge and build a new one instead of just renovating this bridge? Um, cause well, I know that Iowa, uh, DOT just put a study out and they're going to make it basically six lanes from that bridge all the way out, um, on interstate 80 past a uh, well past Davenport. And I don't, I, I mean, this is, this is what the engineer has said, um, is that he doesn't believe that those piers that exist now would be able to, um, be able to handle that sort of that expansion for but, like but a the, six lane bridge and the, there's no shoulders it's not that the bridge is bad but there's no shoulders on the bridge so if you break down you just there's only right. like a two foot shoulder on there so but so i think can, it's more of a safety thing so it can be repurposed uh, away from from heavy traffic to bisons I mean, my impression is you've got bison on one side of the bridge and pedestrians, bicyclists on the other. No motor vehicles, right? Entirely. No, no, no motor vehicles. Just, uh, just, uh, yeah, westbound lane dedicated to bison with about 50 acres, approximately uh, 50 acres on each side. There'll probably be a little more land because it's more land available on the Illinois side for the bison. And then what it would do is connect uh, the bike paths that are already going down um both sides of the river the one in iowa is almost out to leclerc now so it would connect a 21 mile um basically loop around the quad cities here and add definitely a quality of life okay so also yeah so so a a bison decides to uh leave illinois in the morning and head to iowa for the day crosses the river eats a bunch of grass on the way over gets to iowa what happens there is there is there a place where it can hang out there or is it got to go back to illinois no, it's not. They're not. You know, there's 50 acres about on each side. So, okay. And and it's not like the bison be able to do that every day. It's when the conditions would be right because bison are hard on the land. So if it's dry enough, the grass is tall enough. There's certain day certain days they'd be able to. And and uh, and as far as the well being of the animals, I, I I'm working with a few different bison experts, and and they've told me if you put the bison in there when they're young, they'll just think it's part of you know, their landscape and they won't even think about it being a bridge. There's grass there, they'll eat. And and so, yeah. So how do the powers that be feel about this? The DOT, sure, but also the city councils of the cities on both sides of the river, the, 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 uh, the, the, the other forces that might weigh in on this state government, the legislature, the governors, how do they all feel about this? I, you know what, I'm going to be honest with you. It, It sounds like a crazy idea. But here's the deal. It caught your attention and I'm doing this interview because of it. Right. And it will catch the attention of the 42,000 cars that are traveling over Interstate 80 a day that are not stopping in the Quad Cities and, and just cruising right on through the Midwest. So you the know? Chamber of I'm, Commerce I'm trying likes to make it? a national park out of it. And, and so the powers that be have been amazing. Like mm. I I pitched this with such reluctancy. I actually had a firm in Denver draw it up because I didn't want anybody to see because I know it's crazy and I know it sounds crazy, but it's doable. And I know it's doable because the first time I went in to, to pitch Iowa Department, of, I'm sorry, Illinois Department of Transportation first, the top three people, they're like, they they went in there to tell me no. And when I put this in a much bigger context, how the Midwest is losing population, we need an iconic thing. This is already there. I'm not building a bridge, you know, an hour long presentation that John Deere actually helped me put together in a, in a more visual uh, term than I originally just had a post board. They loved it. They said, I'll tell you what, there's 65 acres in addition to what you're talking about there. If it would help the project where their rest areas, we would totally uh, be interested to work with you wow. on this. Okay. And so that's, I mean, that's just one. Every congressman, congresswoman has been talked to about it. Nobody has told me anything but praise and nobody's told me any like negatives that they thought yeah. would happen out of it. And so, yeah, it's what about, well received. What about the price tag? Price tag is a gray area. <laughs> 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 and here's why. One, so I hired the actual guy that retired from IDOT that was in charge of this bridge and the current $74 billion, the the I-74 bridge that goes over the... in the Quad Cities. He was also in charge of that. His name is Kevin Marchek. And uh, he said, don't 
pigeonhole yourself by telling a number the, or, or saying a number. Now, we have some estimates, and he certainly helped me on that. But, but the fact is, is we're getting lots of public input. I have, I have 30, just shy of 30,000 people sign up that's saying this is, this is an amazing thing for the Midwest and all that. And they're all going to have an input on what actually is structurally built on the bridge, what it looks like. So I'm not putting a price tag on it, but right. I will tell you that hardly – there's hardly a company, and I've been fundraising. I've run an organization called Living Lands and Waters for many years. I run a, a successful not-for-profit, and I'm very familiar with fundraising, have built great relationships with AgriGrain and, and all sorts of folks. And there's hardly a company in the United States that does not use the interstate system. And this is Interstate 80. It wasn't right. even built as an interstate. It was built as a transcontinental freeway, right. coast-to-coast, like – this is doable. So I behind the scenes, and I won't mention names, but I have vetted this with some really big companies, as big as they get. And every one of them has said, money is not going to be a problem. This is one of a kind, totally unique. It, the bridge is already there. I mean, everything I'm pitching. And and so I've, I've been working on this sort of idea, like I said, for 20 years. And, right. and then the last five years, I really I started doing restoration on the Illinois side, and then the last two years I put a team of consultants and engineers and marketing folks. And so, so so, you know, so it sounds like you've got it sounds like you've got Jeff Bezos, uh, uh, Warren Buffett, and Bill Gates on your side. Yeah, they actually uh, <laughs> two of them just called me yesterday, and uh, no, I'm kidding. I haven't reached out to those guys, but okay. I do have a list of very prominent people. Um, you know, that, that I will be talking to right. about it. I, again, even my board of directors, which are all very successful business folks and associated with different companies are like, you know, money's not going to be the issue. So, yeah. um, I, I'm, and again, I'm going to, I'm going to make this a national monument run by the national park service, exactly like the St. Louis arches. Right. And they just did a $367 million renovation there in the last five years. And it was all private money. Yeah. So if they can do that there, I can certainly do something much smaller up here. Well, I went up in the, uh, in the arch once and i it was, uh, Probably the most claustrophobic uh, sensation I've ever experienced in my life. I'll never do it again. But I will definitely walk across <laughs> a bridge across the Mississippi River if I can hobnob with some bison along the way. That sounds like yeah. uh, that sounds like a, a beautiful dream. And again, national park. Iowa does not have a national park, so this would be the first. Uh, maybe Illinois doesn't have one either. I'm not sure. Um, there there are some national like uh, some smaller national parks, uh, even like. You know, well, I guess the closest on the river, I would say, they don't have one on the river in Iowa. But uh, you know, the up in Minneapolis, there's there's some national parks up there along the river, and obviously the Arch. And this yeah, would be right. right smack dab in the middle. And and the the, the bison is what the you know is going to make people stop. Right. But it truthfully is celebrating the importance of the Mississippi River, just right. from an economic standpoint, a wildlife standpoint. There's a lock and dam right there. How it uh, hauls all the ag products down. You know, it's it's so important in so many ways. So that that the Mississippi River is what's really right. being the focus here. Well, and uh, if you think of traveling with your family across the United States, there's two iconic places. One is traveling across the Mississippi River. You're going to remember that as a kid or an adult. And the other is seeing the Rocky Mountains uh, for the first time. And, and that's and I, I that. totally so, get that. You know. Chad, that's great stuff. i got to run to a break. Uh, folks have been talking with Chad Pragraki about the Bison Bridge across the Mississippi, a dream that uh, is gradually but persistently coming to fruition. Chad, thank you so much for joining us. Yep, and please go to bisonbridge.org and please sign up. All right. Very good. Thank you. And when we come back, Thanks folks, um, when we come back, we're going to talk about the resistance that's building against the Line 3 pipeline in northern Minnesota. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. 
cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. back at it folks ed fallon with you on the fallon forum hey thanks to our local business partners including architecture by synthesis where mark clipsham offers planning and design services for high performance low maintenance homes and buildings mark specializes in environmentally friendly designs including highly insulated structures made from grain bins as architecture by synthesis Thanks also to Groovy Goods, Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods calls itself a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovygoods.com or stop in at 23rd and University in Des Moines. Okay, so last week, the Minnesota Court of Appeals handed a major victory to a Canadian pipeline company, uh, Enbridge Energy. That's the uh, company behind exploiting the tar sands region of Alberta. And if you've ever seen aerial photographs of the tar sands region, it, um, it looks like either a scene from Dante's Inferno or the Lord of the Rings mortar specifically, uh, or, or, or just a, or maybe, maybe, a, maybe something from hell itself. It's really hideous what has happened to that landscape. And, of course, uh, that is some of the dirtiest oil in the world. Uh, Joe Biden agrees with that. We actually have him on record saying, yeah, it's dirty. <laughs> uh, I think he calls it the dirtiest oil, in fact. But the, um, the disappointing thing is that the utility regulator's approval of their um, pipeline, their replacement project called Line 3, uh, stands. The, the, uh, they, they were sued. Uh, it, it, was, it was hoping to, uh, to stop it from moving forward. Unfortunately, it does move forward. Uh, so the, the, the panel ruled two to one that there is substantial evidence to support the uh, Public Utility Commission's approval of the project. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, this is despite huge opposition, uh, despite all these concerns about how dirty that oil is, all, all these concerns about the water. I mean, this runs through a very, I mean, we're talking about the land of 10,000 lakes, right? It's a lot of water up there. And it crosses the Mississippi as well. Um, and, of course, the biggest issue, climate change. You know, it, it, the Native uh, folks who have been fighting this have been fighting it boldly and, uh, and with lots of, um, you know, I mean, a long, long-standing commitment to this. And uh, they've sued. Uh, I'm not sure what happens next. Uh, this was an unfortunate and significant ruling. And... and let me tell you one interesting thing that happened that I thought I thought would maybe work favorably in terms of the opposition to the pipeline, and that was the um, Berker Berker Biner Ski Foundation. Maybe folks don't know about the American Berker Biner race, but I have some personal affiliation with this because um, back in 1981, maybe uh, no, no, it would have been 82, maybe 83. I raced in the. Uh, the ski race, it's, it's a big race, it's a big deal. It was even a big deal back then. It's much bigger now. Uh, I had taken up cross-country skiing. I was pretty good at it. I nonetheless got my butt kicked. Um, <laughs> but it is, it is a prestigious event and a well-respected foundation, especially in, in northern Wisconsin and Minnesota. Well, what, what they did was they dropped Enbridge as a sponsor. Uh, they said uh, that their membership objected to the, quote, incompatibility of the Birkenbiner's green goals and Enbridge Line 3's sand, uh, tar sands pipelines. So that was significant. Uh, we need more of that. We need more institutions, businesses, uh, you know, universities, city councils, legislatures stepping forward and saying, hey, this has got to stop. And it's happening, but it needs to happen faster. You know, I, I don't I don't know what else it's going to take to um, to uh, to get President Biden, for example, to 
to be consistent. I mean, he, he shut down Keystone right away. He also said very clearly that he was opposed. He's, he said he was always opposed to the Dakota Access Pipeline. If you're opposed to Keystone and opposed to Dapple, there's no way you can be in support of Line 3. And hopefully the, I mean, you would think that the 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 higher and higher profile of Line 3 would cause the president and others in his administration to think more carefully about the importance of President Biden being consistent. I mean, I can't tell you how many times he said to bold Iowa activists, you can go to the bold Iowa website and look up uh, climate bird dogs and look up candidate interactions and Look at, look at the Joe Biden page, and there it is, time after time. Biden saying, I've always been opposed to the Dakota Access Pipeline. Now, I will say, he sometimes would mix up Dapple and Keystone, but when he was pushed on the fact that we were talking about the pipeline through Iowa, through Standing Rock, he would come around and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm against that too. So he needs to do the right thing. He needs to shut this down. Now, the one candidate that never came out in opposition to pipelines uh, and specifically refused to take a stand or say anything about Line 3 was Amy Klobuchar, the uh, Democratic senator from Minnesota, who was also one of only two politicians to take money from a key uh, person involved with promoting that pipeline. I can't remember the guy's name now, but she took um, campaign money. She ended up returning it after she was pressured but the other politician to take money from that uh, Enbridge Line 3 person, Donald Trump. <laughs> so Amy Klobuchar in great company there. But uh, again, she has been emphatically in favor of it. She, she talks about the need for uh, full environmental review, but she's, um, she's blowing smoke, folks. I think most people who are involved with this know that. Uh, the native people, the landowners, the environmental community in Minnesota, they know that she has not been on their side. And I wonder whether that's going to come back to, you know, to cause her some problems in the future. Uh, because uh, it's not in the best interest of her constituents to keep supporting Line 3. And again, the heat keeps turning up on Line 3. Now, since, um, you know, since December of last year, despite the pandemic and Despite all the growing concerns about the pipeline, about climate change specifically, and about the pipeline, Line 3 generally, specifically, uh, they've been going ahead with, uh, with um, trying to build it. And um, in fact, uh, that's, that they've, they've gone so far ahead in, in trying to uh, put it in the ground that uh, you know, they're clearing land, they're, they're doing all that kind of work, and um, people have turned out to protest, much as, we, much as we did with the Dakota Access Pipeline in Iowa, people have turned out to try to stop the pipeline from being built. There have been master, mass arrests, I mean, huge numbers of arrests, including just, uh, just this month. Um, people who had chained themselves to construction equipment, uh, they had barricaded a road leading to uh, one of the construction sites. Um, and they used, in one case, they used an old fishing boat along with some other obstacles to block the road. Uh, and much like at Standing Rock, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's really impossible to argue that there's not systemic racism in this country when uh, hundreds of mostly white protesters here in Iowa who also got arrested blocking the construction of the pipeline were given kind of the kit glove treatment. And maybe that says something important about there's a certain level of, I mean, you could argue this too, I guess, but there seems to be a level of civility uh, here that, uh, that doesn't exist elsewhere. But I think the bigger factor is white protesters tend to get off easier than people of color. And that's, uh, that's indicative of the systemic racism that, uh, that haunts this nation still. And so we saw that in, in Standing Rock. Um, uh, law, law enforcement using dogs. Um, helicopters, uh, something called an LRAD, a long-range acoustic device. This is basically a, a sound machine that uh, is, is almost impossible. To, you, you, can't, you can't listen to it without, you got to block your ears. It's, uh, it's painful. It's, uh, it's, it's bad for you. They use this on people. 
you know, they didn't use that on us in Iowa. They didn't use the dogs on us in Iowa. But they use these things on the Yasu in Standing Rock. They've used them on, now they're using them on the people in um, Minnesota, the native people opposing the Line 3 pipeline. Uh, and I can't say for sure about dogs or water hoses, but they have used the long-range acoustic device. I, that's a great name, isn't it? So the um, right now, the uh, the National Lawyers Guild, who have always been uh, a great uh, assistant to people using nonviolent action to oppose injustice, in this case, to oppose the injustice of a pipeline, the um, the uh, representatives of the National Lawyers Guild were at one of the recent protests, and they confirmed that over a hundred people had been arrested. Uh, there was a um, Helicopter, again, hovering just 20 to 25 feet above a group of protesters who were uh, occupying a pump station. And it um, <clears throat> kicked up a whole mess of debris, clouds of dust. Um, that's also not real good for you. Uh, just the way, ju just as a long-range acoustic device damages your hearing, uh, huge clouds of dust kicked up by a helicopter can do a number on your lungs. So, again... President Biden just needs to step in and do what he promised he'd do. He said he was against these pipelines. He needs to prove it. He needs to shut this down. He needs to shut down DAPL and Line 3 like he did the Keystone Pipeline. When we come back, we're going to shift gears. We're going to be talking in our food segment about why food prices are going up and what that means for people. Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farms is going to join us. We'll be back in just a minute. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Back to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and I'm grateful for the local businesses that help make this program possible, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store, open seven days a week, and also a great cafe. Had breakfast there recently. Uh, Gateway's Cafe is open seven days a week, and also they've got a floral service, a catering service, and if you order groceries online, they will deliver them to you curbside. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Speaking of food, we're going to be talking about food and the high price that food items, some of them, have risen to. With us for that conversation is Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thanks. Food prices are on the rise. It's it's really in the news. It's not the first time it's happened, though. But uh, when I hear about rising food prices, a couple of things come to mind. Yes, it's tough for people who are having a hard time already paying for food. And um, it also makes me think about the, the people who grow the food who maybe might also be uh, somewhat food insecure because they're not earning the actual income that can allow them to purchase the food at higher prices. At higher prices. But it sounds like in 2020, food prices rose by about 3%. But since the beginning of the year, there's, there's been another, another jump. Yeah, and there's probably a lot of factors, I imagine. Yeah, I, I think if you listen to the news and don't dig deeper, though, you're going to miss something. Uh, for instance, there were, uh, there were people who said that COVID-19 lockdowns are a wrecking ball for food systems. That was um, the director of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. And my thought is, um, yes, uh, lockdowns are bad for really large-scale corporate food production systems. We certainly saw that with the meatpacking industry in Iowa. Absolutely, and meat prices are, are up. Right. Um, but w if we think about um, COVID lockdowns and we think about what we can do to be prepared for those in the future, go back to localized food. And to me, that's, that's where it's at. That's how we're going to avoid uh, people feeling the impact of food price increases based on severe weather, pandemics, that kind of and a lot of uh, farmers who are raising food for the local market, uh, 
either selling directly to customers, to restaurants, grocery stores, uh, through a, a CSA or to the farmer's market, you know, there, there's no federal price support system to help them out. Right. Uh, it's the commodity crop growers, uh, and I'm, I'm not faulting them. I just think we have a system that's misguided when it comes to, you know, providing support for the big items, corn, soybeans, cotton, uh, wheat, uh, but, you know, leaving the smaller operator who might be doing something uh, that is broader and actually more direct in terms of providing food directly to consumers, that they don't they don't have that kind of support network. So I imagine they've been hit pretty hard. And you, you mentioned uh, meat prices, too, and local producers. Uh, also, this, uh, this during the past year and after the derecho, the, the big storm we had in Iowa and other serious events across the nation, uh, people who... Uh, help process the foods, the meats that farmers are growing locally, small scale. Uh, there are so few of those because the, most of the meat is processed in great big meat packing yeah. plants that do not care for their workers very well. Um, the systems aren't very safe for them. So the fact that it's been harder for some of the smaller local producers to get that meat processed, there's been long wait for that and, and higher prices. So we had this huge uh, storm, the the. Uh, the the uh, cold snap that hit Texas was unprecedented, and I and they obviously they weren't prepared for it on a number of levels. Uh, their what their power grids went went down, but but I, I imagine it had an impact on food as well. Mm-hmm. What do you? Well, the, people couldn't get the food from one place to the other, um, so uh, the the movement of food, you know, from the the. the big produce, producer farmer to yeah. the warehouse where it's going to be or whoever's going to process it into something else that people want to eat. Right. Um, those things all are impacted. That's another argument for local production. It is. You know, And I know that, uh, I don't know whether this uh, operation is still happening, but years ago there was a minority-owned business that got some, some public assistance to get it started. And I think, I think getting a food processing facility started that's the kind of thing that I don't. I have no trouble with a state or local or even federal grant to make that possible. But this was a minority-owned business to uh, basically, I think, it was canning tomatoes. Maybe they were making other tomato products as well. But they were taking locally grown tomatoes, and believe me, tomatoes, at least in Iowa, they grow really well in the summertime. But they were able to, uh, you know, help the farmers who are raising those tomatoes. Mm-hmm. They were able to uh, create a product that uh, that was locally marketed, uh, competitively priced, and earning income while doing that. You know, those it, to me, local food isn't just about growing the food. It's what's the next step, and that's where what you said, Kathy. Uh, you know, that, that that comes into play there when you talk about what's involved in having a big warehouse somewhere, a big processing facility out in California, wherever, in South America, who knows where. And the, the, the processing and packaging and then shipping all emanates from that one point. Think of all the carbon you save and all the, uh, all the money you potentially save by, by sourcing those functions locally. And as well, all of the carbon that is produced, all of the fossil fuel that's consumed, all of the water that's used to produce these, these big amounts of food that get processed into something else and shipped distances, huge distances, that's exacerbating the climate chaos that we're seeing now, which is causing some of the food disruptions. So it's a snowball effect. Yeah. Now, did I read somewhere that in Des Moines, people are now paying an average of 10 or $15, is it a week more for food? I was not sure what the article said. It said $15 more dollars for food, but it didn't say per how much time. Oh. So, <laughs> so well, that I, uh, I I didn't didn't really know what the source was that for that, so I couldn't look it up. Yeah. But uh, it's you know this is not the first time that we've seen rises in food prices, and then people jumping to blame. Uh, let's say shutting down pipelines because the oil oh, price yeah. is going up. So they're blaming some of the external factors that really we should be getting away from where food production is concerned anyway. And we should all be moving to more localized food. Yeah. I mean, the, the number of jobs you can create. I mean, we grow a lot of our own food, of course, but we also support a lot of local farmers by buying what we don't raise directly from those farms. Uh, or, again, we get it at, at, at local stores, businesses, or restaurants that, that, uh, that also you know, support those farmers. 
you know, that, that's just so much more um, impactful in a favorable way than, you know, burning fossil fuels to pipe it in from somewhere else. And remember, those things are heavily subsidized. The, the subsidies for fossil fuel, uh, for fossil fuel companies is huge. And uh, you, can't, you, can't, you can't talk about food prices without factoring in that misguided use of taxpayer money. It's kind of sad because people generally, even people who can afford whatever the price is going to be, still complain about food being expensive. People just expect that food is going to be cheap mm. and that there will be something in place to make it cheap. And frankly, that devalues the people who are on the ground working to grow that food. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I just think we have our system upside down. Yeah, and we certainly want it to be affordable to everybody, you know, I mean, especially people who are who are, live in food-challenged areas, what are, what are some call, sometimes called food deserts. You absolutely want to make sure that folks in those situations can afford to buy nutritious food. You know, I lived for 19 years in the inner city of Des Moines, and yes, Virginia, Iowa, Des Moines does have a, an inner city. And uh, our, quote, grocery store was a quick shop where, you know, you, you know packaged foods, candy bars, uh, Sure, beer as well. Um, you know, you had you had an occasional item of actual food value, but most of it was junk food. That was the grocery store. That's a food desert. Yeah. And those prices aren't cheap either. They're high. So thanks again, Kathy, for joining us. And thanks to our other guests as well, Maureen McHugh and Chad Pergracki. Uh, thanks to our partners, Gateway Market and Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, Groovy Goods, and our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to our amazing production squad of Sherry Herdina and Kathy Burns, and to the rest of our team, Forrest Detterman and Charles Goldman. And thanks again to you for tuning into this program. Remember, you can follow us on Facebook. You can sign up for our weekly messages and help spread the word as we continue to try to provide an alternative to the shock jocks that dominate commercial radio in the U.S. today. Thanks again. This is Ed Fallon, your host for the Fallon Forum.